A man complimented his neighbor one day about her beautiful garden saying, wow, you must have some green thumb. She said, what green thumb? All I have are dirty thumbs and bruised knees. I want to remind us today that about something that we already know, that godly growth does not come automatically in gardens or in Christians, as some may think and as some may even hope for. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we are grateful for the opportunity once again to be just an instrument humbled to be just an instrument in your hand today, and I look to you for the enabling to guide and direct and strengthen, to be just the channel through which you will communicate to your people on how important it is that you be excited about our growth and our development into the kind of godly character people that you really want us to be, to resemble you. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, today that as you communicate with your people that the response would be receptive hearts, willing hearts, hearts determined to do whatever is necessary in order that you may be excited about how we are growing in your likeness. Bless our time and our receptiveness, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. You know, I was uh, <clears throat> challenged about uh, this message, and uh, shortly after begin preparing it, I got an email devotional from uh, the Billy Graham Evangelical Association. They have these e-devotionals they send out uh, from Decision Magazine. And what was interesting was I was in, in the midst of preparing this, this message, and I got this email uh, talking about, it was entitled, Let There Be Growth, and it was written by Billy Graham. And so I want to I wanna, I wanna share it. Notice what it says. It's Billy Graham, and I quote, Why don't we grow in our faith? Sometimes it's because of a particular sin we have tolerated and allowed to block God's work, work refusing to admit it or give it up. Or sometimes we don't grow spiritually because we give in to the pressure of those around us who care little for Christ, or may even be hostile to him, family, friends, fellow students, neighbors, co-workers. In my experience, however, most Christians fail to grow in their faith either because they don't realize they ought to grow or because they don't know how to grow. They know Christ died for them and that they will go to heaven someday, but they don't know what ought to be happening to them in the meantime. They remain spiritually weak and immature, never experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus promises followers. Does this describe you? Don't let anything or anyone stand in the way of your growth in Christ. Begin now by asking God to remove whatever barriers are keeping you from working in your life, keeping him from working in your life. Then make it your goal to become, with God's help and help, the mature Christian he wants you to be. And this is Billy Graham's prayer. Dear Lord, 
We declare that this is a new day of surrender as we yield our all to you and invite you to mold and make us into everything you want us to be. Please forgive us for how our sin has stunted our spiritual growth. Please grow us now into full maturity in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. End of quote. Now, we're going to look at that prayer at the end of the service because I want you to think about that. And I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you with that prayer at the end of the service today. But this article from Billy Graham no doubt confirms the ongoing necessity for godly, the godly growth of God's people. Don't you agree? It's something that continues to really kind of upset God. And you parents who have children can understand that because you've at some particular point had children who you wanted to grow to a certain degree and they, it just didn't happen. And so you were kind of frustrated. So we can imagine how God must, must feel when uh, he wants his children to grow and, and they don't really grow uh, the way he desires them to grow, even though he's provided everything that is necessary for them to grow. So then how does Christian growth take place? Because we have the, we don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to, to truly be godly. God graciously, and he's a gracious God, he graciously shares his divine nature with us to keep us from sin and to help us live specifically for him and him alone. When we're born again, God the Holy Spirit empowers us with God's own goodness, the goodness of God. So the power to live a godly life actually comes from God according to the text we're going to look at today. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3, reading from verse 3 to verse 4. Notice, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Now notice, not some things, a couple of things, or a few things. He's given us everything we need. We have received all of this by coming to know him. The one who calls us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So you might want to say carnal desires or worldly desires. But notice what Peter is telling us here. He says, everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to live the abundant, fulfilled, satisfying life. And everything we need to live like Christ has, what does it say? Already, past tense, already been given to us. And yet there's still some sitting around waiting, Lord, when are you going to give it? Lord, when are you going to get it? God says, you've already gotten it. I've already given you everything you need to live a godly life. Why aren't you using it? 
Now Peter's statement is essential because many Christians don't have this understanding. And that's why they're still waiting and hanging around and wasting time. Some believers are so tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that they think there's a key. And if they can find this key, they can unlock the padlock to godliness. And so they're still looking, they're still searching. And while the search continues for this key to open this padlock to godliness, Peter conveys some fantastic enlightenment that we've been reading over and over and over and over again and still haven't gotten it. Peter says, God has already given us everything we need to live a godly life. Jesus also reiterated that. Notice what Jesus says in John 3, 6. Humans can produce only human life, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives both, gives birth to spiritual life. And God has already done that. He's provided that already. And so what Peter presents here could be described as the mathematics of godly growth. Or you might want to call it God's formula for growing spiritually. Whatever, whatever you want to call it. And so the question that confronts, that really confronts each of us today that are gathered in this sanctuary is this. As we face the vicissitudes of life each day, are we using God's formula for godly growth? Or are we using something else? And if we're using something else other than God's formula, it means that we're not growing because only God's formula works. Those of you who plant and who do gardening and stuff, you know that some of the formulas that you use to do things, it wouldn't work. Unless you use the right formula, mix the right ingredients, then you won't get the kind of product or produce or, or harvest that you expect to get. And so God has provided a formula. God has provided the provisions. Peter takes for granted that here that, that faith is already in place. That's not one of the things that you need. According to Peter, he takes for granted that's already in place as he makes this challenge about the need for godly growth. After all, notice now he's writing not to unbelievers, but he's writing to Christians, those who have already exercised saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't instruct them to supply faith. He assumes that they already have it. They have it already. His point is faith is the original factor that must be complemented by some other stuff. So according to Peter, godly growth takes place when we add the proper ingredients or the proper elements to the original factor of faith. So notice then how godly growth really adds up, according to Peter. The first ingredient or element we must add to the factor of faith is moral excellence. Notice the text, verse 5. In view of all this, that is in view of all that he's just said already, make every effort. Now that means do whatever is in your power to do whatever you can. Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith. That means you already have it. With a generous provision of what? Moral excellence. The King James, the word is virtue. And so after asking the Lord Jesus Christ to come into our life, we should be, our, our, our way of life should be distinguished 
by moral excellence or purity, purity of life, how we walk. We must understand that this is not just a solo proclamation in this one particular book of the New Testament. It's it's a message that saturates the entire Bible. If you go all the way back to Genesis and read on down through the books, you'll see, you'll see that God is always concerned about moral excellence in his people. When we, when we think about the, the high priest and how they had to be dressed and all the stipulations that God put on them, if they didn't follow those stipulations, they would have been dead men. And that's why they had to have a rope tied on them when they go into the Holy of Holies. If they go in there and they didn't meet every single criteria that God met, somebody would have to pull them out. That's how particular God is. Not as Peter or Paul. What Paul writes in, uh, to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 5 verse 22. He says, do not share in the sins of others. Do what? Keep yourself what? Pure. And then to the Corinthian Christians, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because of what? Because we fear God. We're concerned about how concerned God is about our purity. John wrote in his epistle, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves what? Will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. And then Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. So we see just from those few passages in the New Testament how concerned God is about purity. And so the testimony of God's word is unanimous. If we really want to be used by God, if we really want our life to be productive for God, what will we do? We must keep ourselves pure, exemplifying in our life the moral excellence that brings glory and honor to God. But what does this involve? What does it take? What must we do? What must we not do? Moral excellence involves what we do. To achieve moral excellence, there are some things that we must not do, even though we may have done them a lot in the past. But they are now past tense. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so some things that we have done in the past, that we probably did a lot of in the past, that we need to stop doing. We can't do it anymore because we have changed. That involves moral excellence too. Back in the, uh, back in the day, some people call it the good old days or the, or the olden days, a pastor was riding his bicycle doing visitation. Those days they rode a bicycle to go around and uh, he was riding his trusty bicycle. And as he turned the corner, he saw a little boy on the side of the street trying to sell a lawnmower. And so he, he asked the little boy, he says, how much, do you, how much are you asking for the lawnmower? The little boy says, well, sir, all I want is enough money to buy a bicycle. And so after thinking about it for a few minutes, the pastor said, what if we trade? What if I give you my bicycle for the lawnmower? 
The boy's eyes brighten up. He says, mister, you got yourself a deal. And so they switched. He gave the boy his bicycle and he took the lawnmower. But the problem was he couldn't get the lawnmower started. And so he kept pulling on that cord and pulling on that cord and it wouldn't start. So he said to the boy, hey, say, son, I can't get this lawnmower started. Little boy says, my dad said you got to cuss at it to get it started. Pastor said, but I can't. I'm a pastor. I can't cuss. Besides, I've been saved so long, I don't even remember how to cuss. Little boy said, you just keep pulling on that cord and it'll come back to you. <laughs> Listen, the Bible makes it quite clear. And by the way, I've seen that happen to some believers. I know some of you have seen it too. The Bible makes it quite clear that some things are absolutely wrong for Christians to do and should be intentionally excluded from our lives and our lifestyles at all costs. So moral excellence involves what we do, but moral excellence also involves what we think, what our thought patterns are like. And uh, because of the unavoidable sights and sounds that are all around us on a consistent basis, there's a constant challenge to keep a clean mind in a dirty world. You just can't go anywhere without being confronted by it. You go in, 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 the, in the grocery store, uh, and there it is. You go on a, in a line in the bank, and there it is. You, you're walking along the street, or you're driving along the street, and, and there it is. It's difficult. And this is why the words of Paul should be taken so seriously at all times. These should be constant words on our mind. Notice what he says in Philippians 4.8. Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Moral excellence includes, involves what we think. But moral excellence also involves what we expose ourselves to or what we allow ourselves to be exposed to. In a group of tourists going on a tour in a coal mine one day was a young lady wearing a elegant white dress. And everybody laughed at her because of what she was wearing. And so she looked at the tour guide and says, can I wear a white dress down in the mine? And the old wise tour guide says, there's nothing wrong to keep you from wearing a white dress going down but there's a whole lot to keep you from wearing one back. And you know, the spiritual truth is, when we continually expose ourselves to the dirt and the evil and the temptation and the immorality of the world, it will eventually rub off on us. Which means we must always be careful about where we go, about who we associate with, who we hang out with, who our friends are, who our, who our comrades are, what we read, and what we look at. Whatever we habitually expose ourselves to will determine the ultimate direction our lives will go in. So the first ingredient or element then we must add to the original factor of faith is moral excellence. So let me ask you today, is this how godly growth adds up in your life? Do you have moral, have you added moral excellence to the original factor of faith in your life to the point where you are growing 
into the godly person that God wants you to be. But then there's a second ingredient or element that we must add to the fact of faith, and that is knowledge. Verse 5, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge. And the Greek word means insight or understanding. But, you know, insight and understanding can only be accomplished by study. You've got to study to get that. A little boy who was promoted from, in Sunday school from the, from the primary to the junior department said to his mother one day, he says, Mom, you know, I don't see why teacher wasn't promoted too. She knows about as much as I do. But you know, that little boy was closer to the truth that many of us would like to admit. Many Christians have limited spiritual knowledge for the simple reason that they fail to study the word of God. They want to open the Bible when they come to church on Sunday and then close it and go home and that's it. Failing to study will not allow us to get the knowledge that we need. Can you imagine a, an effective teacher who never studies and prepares a lesson plan? Can you imagine a good lawyer like, like Brother Brian Marie, who never looked, who, who, who would never look at the law books, who would never re-examine the law books and, and study case studies based on those laws and see how successful they were. Can you imagine a lawyer like that? Would you want a lawyer like that? His mistake would land you behind bars. But can you imagine an effective, uh, a doctor who doesn't keep up with the newest developments in medicine? who doesn't do research and look at the, 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 the techniques that are, that are used in the field of medicine today. Can you imagine a, a doctor being good by not doing any of that? Of course, the resounding answer is no. Yet some Christians think that they can be stars in God's kingdom without disciplining themselves to the study of the scriptures. It'll never happen. And so I submit to you today, the only way we can grow as Christians is to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this true of you in your growth? The third ingredient or element we must add to the fact of faith is discipline. He says in verse 6, unto knowledge with self-control. And the Greek term references holding oneself in. Holding oneself in. The problem God has with some of his children today is that they want growth without growing pains. And it can't happen that way. In our day of soft Christianity and cheap faith, we need to be reminded again of Jesus' challenge as recorded in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. It reads, when then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what discipline looks like. That's how discipline is fleshed out. Prominent statistician in the business arena once made this statement, I quote, The really big people in business have won their spurs by doing what they didn't want to do when they didn't want to do it. End of quote. Now, this is also true in the spiritual arena. The really big persons in the kingdom of God today are those persons who are willing to do what they don't want to do when they didn't feel like doing it. 
And so if discipline demanded losing bad company, they did it. If discipline demanded giving up some worldly pleasure, they they did it. If discipline demanded praying when they didn't feel like praying, they did it. If discipline demanded loving an unlovable person, and you know you got some of them in the body of Christ too, they did it anyway. They did it. Sometimes we make it a habit though of failing to discipline ourselves to do what we know is right. We know is right. And then we go to extremes to avoid the consequences that results from our actions that were wrong in the first place. A lady, Christian woman, devout, always in prayer meeting, always in Bible study, always reading the word of God, got pulled over one day for speedy. And uh, she thought that she would quote scripture to avoid getting a ticket. And so she put on her most pious face and a little puppy dog smile and she said to the, to the police officer, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Without hesitation, the officer promptly wrote her a ticket, handed it to her, and said to her, go thou and sin no more. <laughs> listen. Listen, beloved, listen. We cannot, we cannot do whatever wrong we want or feel like doing and get away with it and still, yet still expect to grow as a Christian. It will not happen. It can't happen. It's a must that we do precisely what God wants us to do, not what we feel like doing. It's what God wants us to do. We must add discipline to our factor of faith. So let me ask you again, is this how godly growth adds up in your life? Are you adding discipline to the original factor of faith and thereby you're growing into the godly person that God wants you to be? The fourth ingredient or element that we must add to the factor of faith is endurance. Verse six, again, and knowledge with self-control and with self-control, patient endurance. The King James' word is, Translate the word patience. In the Greek, it also means endurance. But he says here, patient endurance. And it speaks of staying power. Or what someone may say, stickability. Do you have the stickability to stay at the task? One of the things we notice in scripture is by, by tracing Paul's experience with Demas from Colossians to Philemon 24 and then on to 2 Timothy. We see a familiar but disturbing pattern that is so evident among believers, even today. Colossians chapter 4 verse 14 reads, Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings and so does Demas. He's right there. And then Philemon 24, so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. Still there. Then when we come to 2 Timothy 4.10, we read something disturbing. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone on to Thessalonica. First crack, Demas gone. He did not have the endurance. And I submit to you today that regardless of how talented you are, 
Regardless of how gifted you are or how enthusiastic you are at the, at the beginning of your Christian journey, we will never move towards spiritual maturity unless we are willing to endure to the end. It is essential, absolutely essential, that we add endurance to the factor of faith for godly growth to ever take place in our lives. So is this how godly growth adds up in your life? Do you have the endurance? But there's a fifth ingredient or element he adds that must be added to the factor of faith, and that is godliness. He says, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness. Godliness is a quality of oneness with God, and it's accomplished for the most part through prayer. One prayer warrior says this, and I quote, he says, I find myself better or worse as I pray more or less. It works with almost mathematical precision, end of quote. But you know, we have uh, three occurrences in scripture where a person's face glows with radiance mainly because of spending time with God, spending time in God's presence. The first one was Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, 35. And the reason the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. So he would put a veil over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. The other occurrence was Jesus himself on the Mount of Transfiguration, as recorded in Matthew 17, 2. Now, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And then remember that occasion with Stephen. Remember when Stephen was about to be stoned? He gazed into heaven. Acts 6.15 reads, At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. And so this, this, this godliness of virtue simply means that our lives should actually resemble God's in the way of practical holiness or experiential holiness. Our behavior should have such a supernatural quality about it that it tells people that we are children of the Heavenly Father because the family resemblance is unmistakable. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard people look at you and says, boy, I could tell you belong to the Lord because the family resemblance is unmistakable when you walk in godliness and you live according to the way God wants you to live. Our behavior should have such a supernatural quality that there's a family res- uh, resemblance that exudes. I could look at Jonathan and tell you that, that, that that's, that's, that's Craig's boy. People should be able to look at us in the same way and say, I could see you a child of God. I could see you belong to the Lord. That's what he's talking about when he talks about godliness. And so it goes without saying. That godliness is a vital ingredient. In fact, Paul mentions it as well. He says godliness is much better. When he, talk, when he compares it with, with physical exercise, he says godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. So you see how beneficial it is? Do you want everything to be packed into this little transient life? Or do you want something for later? It goes without saying, a vital ingredient is that we add to the factor of faith 
godliness, in order for godly growth to be a reality in our lives. So is this how godly growth adds up in your life today? Do you have godliness? But then the sixth and final ingredient that Peter mentions that must be added to the factor of faith is love. He says, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. Now, it doesn't say some people, does it? But we are very selective when it comes to our love, aren't we? But notice what he says. Brotherly kindness is how the world singles us out as followers of Christ. It's how the world distinguishes us as followers of Christ. Two kinds of love is mentioned here in this passage. Uh, uh, actually mentioned by Peter. The first one is Philadelphia or brotherly kindness. And it's, it's, a, it's a kind of love that uh, is expressed in a wider and deeper sense toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the kind of love that God expects us to express toward one another in the fellowship of believers. In, in Romans chapter 10, 12 and verse 10 we read, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. And uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 22, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters love each other deeply with all your heart. That's brotherly kindness. That's Philadelphia, brotherly love. But then there's that other kind of love that we are most familiar with, and that is agape love. And this is Calvary love. Instead of being emotional, it operates with, it, with deliberate choice. This is the kind of love that enables the believer to, to love his enemies, not because he likes them, but because they need his love. You see, you don't have to like somebody to love them. The fact that you don't like them means that they really need your love. Jesus himself said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But the question is, how is this, how is godly growth really shaped by love? Well, as we give other people access to our lives through Calvary love, agape love, what we do is we attach their experiences to our experiences, resulting in, in the growth of what we are. Our love determines how big we are in terms of our love. For godly growth to happen, we must add love to the original factor of faith. So again, is this how your godly growth adds up? So, what is the grand total then of godly growth when we add up all of these ingredients or elements to the original factor of faith? You know, whenever you're confronted with a situation, people come to you and says, well, you know, I got some good news and I got some bad news. Which one do you want first? Well, Peter says the same thing. Peter says, how these elements add up in your life depends on some good news 
and some bad news. Verse 9, the good news. Verse 8, the good news. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of us would like to consider ourselves to be useful, right? Right? Isn't that so? I don't think anybody here would like to be considered good for nothing. Right? But that's what he's saying here. The more you grow like this, the more you'll be good for something rather than good for nothing. Here's the bad news, though. Verse 9. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind. Now, I wear glasses, but I still don't like people calling me blind because I'm not blind. Even if I take these off and I can't see your eyeball to eyeball, I can see the glare, but I'm not blind. We don't like people calling us short-sighted. We don't like people calling us blind. Peter says, unless, if, these, if you fail to develop in these ways, you are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that you have been cleansed from your old sins. So how do we keep a balance? How do we keep a balance between God's divine work in our lives and our human responsibility to live godly lives? How does your godly growth add up? By adding the original factor, adding to the original factor of faith moral excellence, plus knowledge, plus discipline, plus endurance, plus godliness, plus love equals godly growth. But consider and reflect on what kind of response you should have. Instead of belief in definite facts, our faith must result in at least two realities, according to Peter. Christian character growth, and secondly, moral discipline lived out or fleshed out daily, every single day, not hit and miss. This means that our faith must result in action or it will literally die. And that's what James says so concisely when he says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds it is dead and useless. Now remember at the outset, Peter says you already have this faith. What you need to do with the faith is add these things to it. Peter clearly points out in the text that the actions of faith must, should be getting to know God better, growing in endurance, doing God's will, not whatever we feel like doing, and loving others. Whether they are Believers are not loving others. Such actions are not automatic. It calls for hard work, and that's probably why some people don't do them, because some people don't like hard work. These calls for hard work. Such actions are also not optional. It's not a smorgasbord. It's not a all-you-can-eat-over-at-Atlantis where you pick what you like and leave what you don't want and do that. No, it's not optional. All must be, can't be a constant factor of the Christian life. And it's not a matter of completing one at a time. We must work on all of them together. It's a package deal. 
Not, I'm going to do this one now and probably next year I'm going to work on that one and then the year after that I'll make on it. Work. No, it's a package. They all work on them together. And so because God gives us the power and the enabling, as Peter says, his divine power, he gives us the enabling. What does he expect? He expects us to be responsible for learning and growing. That's his expectations. Question is, are we living up to those expectations? Or are we letting God down? In closing, as I mentioned earlier, if we have any doubts about how your godly growth is adding up, I invite you right now to join me in praying that same prayer that we read earlier by Billy Graham. Dear God, we declare that this is a new day of surrender as we yield our all to you and invite you to mold and make us into everything you want us to be. Please forgive us for how our sin has stunted our spiritual growth. Please grow us now into a fuller maturity in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with any kind of sincerity, you should expect that God would respond to that prayer. That God would do exactly what you asked him to do. Because one of God's greatest desires for his children is that we would grow in our knowledge of him. Grow into godliness. Grow into the kind of character that he has so that we can resemble him. And people will be able to look at you and say, yeah, there goes a child of God. There goes a son of God. There goes a daughter of God. Amen? May the Lord bless you and make you a blessing for him, for his glory and for his namesake. Amen.